This morning, we wrap up our series of sensational love with a message. Hopefully, it'll give you some hope today. Maybe you felt like over the last seven weeks, like I have, I've been, been in a boxing match, kind of beat myself up and trying to become the person God wants me to be, which is good, sharpening and kind of encouraging and, and pointing out some areas I need to grow in. And I like that. I, I enjoy when someone comes to me and points out areas in my life and love and says, hey, Jim, here's an area that you can grow in. And that's how we sharpen each other. In fact, it's one of the things of the one another's in the New Testament that I love. We're supposed to spur one another on to good works. Today is a culmination of, of all these messages, understanding that the only way that we can ever become the person that God wants us to be is through his grace. And his grace is such an incredible, incredible gift to us. It picks us up when we fall down, and it gets us back on our feet. It gives us hope to know that he's not finished with us. And today's story is almost a culmination of all those things I just said. It's a despicable story of sin. In fact, it might be one that you haven't read or familiar with, but what God does with these people and does with this person is almost unbelievable. And almost, in some ways, some would say, I can't believe that God could take that mess and turn it into something that good. But that's what grace does. It allows us to know today that he can redeem our sin and our messes in such a way that we can press on. So my hope today is that you will see that, not just receive it, you'll receive it, and you'll walk out of here and say, I got hope in Jesus Christ, and I got hope because of his grace. The story today is stuck between another story in the Bible. Most of us are familiar with the story of Joseph. Joseph was sold by his brothers. Uh, they, They didn't like him. They were jealous because he got all the favoritism from his father, Jacob. And so there's this count in Genesis in the 30s chapters where he is sold by his brothers. They go back and tell his dad that he's dead, show him blood on his ornamented robe or some translation, older translations have a coat of many colors. And so his father, Jacob, thinks he's dead. Meanwhile, his brother's just gone living. And we're going to jump in. Chapter 38 of Genesis, we're going to jump in, and we're going to see the story. Don't turn there, just say, we're going, to, we're going to see the story of this man called Judah, who was one of the brothers of Jacob. It's like we're, we're reading about Joseph and his brothers, and they did these things, and all of a sudden, hit the pause button. Let me tell you a story about one of the brothers. And one of the brothers not only did that to his brother Joseph, but he goes on to do what I would say some despicable things, so despicable that you wonder, how could God ever redeem that? And we're going to see today that there's hope because of the grace that God gives us. And there's hope for you. So grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 38. And if you need a Bible, hold your hand up. Ushers will put one in your hand. But turn to Genesis chapter 38. And we're going to hear this story about the man by the name of Judah, who's a brother of Joseph, who sold his brothers into slavery. Now we're going to jump into this count. Joseph, 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 and now Judah. And then after this chapter, Joseph, 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 Joseph. When you find Genesis chapter 38, stand with me and we'll read it out loud together. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. <coughs> Genesis 38, verses 1 through 11. Let's read it out loud together. Ready, read. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. 
It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and named her, her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that she would be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Sheila grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. You may have a seat. (coughs) Some despicable things happening already that we're seeing. Let me begin by saying this today. We, me, you, all of us, I'm in need of God's grace. We're in need of God's grace. Can we just get one amen to that today? If you didn't say amen, then you need to say amen. Can I have amen? Amen. Amen. We need an amen to that. We all, including myself, are in need of God's grace. You and I don't have it together as much as we might pretend to. We have areas in our lives that we're still working it out, where God is still working in, in that sanctification process. We get one area down, it's like, oh boy, here comes another area. And we'll be fighting and battling, becoming more like Jesus until He calls us home or he comes back and raptures his church. So why do we want to start with this Judah guy? Judah, brother of Joseph. We now see this account. He goes away from his brothers. He he departs from them. And he doesn't even stay with them. And he goes to another country, not even God's people. Hangs out with Canaanites. He marries a Canaanite woman, which God would never approve of. And now he begins to see his life unravel even in a greater way. So how in the world? Who is Judah? Why talk about, why Joseph, 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 chapter 38, talk about Judah? Well, hold your finger here and turn to Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5. (coughs) Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5. What does the Bible say about this Judah guy? Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5, while keeping your finger in Genesis 38. John writing about future things, says this as he looked into heaven. Revelation 5, verse 5, he says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of what? The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and his seven seals. All of a sudden, we're see, we're looking at Genesis 38. How can any good come from this? Revelation chapter 5, 5, this Judah dude is mentioned again. And he's mentioned because Jesus is referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Some strong man. Like somehow Jesus is coming through this line of this man. Is it the same Judah? How can that be? Genesis chapter 37. Let's set the context. Look back. Who is this Judah guy? Genesis 37. Look at verses 26 to 28. They're about to sell their brother Joseph. And Judah says this in chapter 37 in verse 26. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother Joseph and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. Verse 27. 
Now, verse 28. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Genesis 38. Joseph gets sold. Judah says, let's do this with him. Genesis 38 and verse 1. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam called Hira. We see what's taking place here. Keep in context, Judah leaves his brothers. We know from Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, Jesus comes through the line of Judah, but we know he now left his brothers. He sold his brother Joseph. And so while that's all going on, he runs away. Look what it says now in verse 2. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son whose name was Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son whose name was Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. That's a horrible name for a dude, by the way. It was Kizib that she gave birth to him. Three children, all far from God. Now look at verse 6. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was what in the eyes of the Lord? Wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord did what? Put him to death. It's interesting as you look at this account. Ur gets one verse in the Bible. Just one verse. And the verse that talks about him says he was wicked in the sight of the Lord. Tamar, firstborn, marries the firstborn of Judah, Ur, is wicked. Keep in mind, Judah doesn't know why. Judah didn't know the Lord put him to death. Puts him to death. Next in line, verse 8. Look at verse 8. So one of his sons is dead. Verse 8 says this. Then Judah said to Onan, his next son up, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. Next in line, his next son up, you're next. Fulfill the duty, you need to marry Tamar. How do we know that? Why? Well, let me give you some Old Testament custom. Keep your finger here and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Genesis, Exodus, Vitigus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 25. And look at verse 5. Here's some Old Testament custom. It helps set the context why she would marry the next brother or why he had to step in line. Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 5 says this. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a what? His widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and what her? What's it say? Marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law. Now, that's some interesting tradition. And maybe some of your wives are saying, I'm glad I don't have to marry my brother-in-law. It would really change things up, wouldn't it? Like, think about this. You fall in love with this guy. Maybe you met him in college. Maybe you met him at the coffee shop. Maybe you met him in school. I don't know where you met him. You just, you, you fall in love with him. And you're like, I really love this dude. Like, Lord, this is the one. Old Testament custom says that in case he died and you didn't give birth to a son, that not only would you marry him, 
But by law, if he didn't give you a son, you were marrying the next brother in line. Now, that would change things, wouldn't it? You'd probably go on Facebook and check out the family photos, wouldn't you? Like, well, I guess. Like, I'm not sure, God. And so the next in line, now imagine the wedding. Like, I mean, you're saying, you're standing there with, with, with the preacher, and he says, will you take this man to be your husband? And before you say I do, you take a look at the groom's party. Well, I guess. Some Old Testament customs. So Ur dies, Onan steps up, and he now must marry his brother's widow. Well, what does he do? Look at verse 9. This is where the story takes a turn. Verse 9 says this, but Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. This is an adult group. We understand that. You can't conceive without semen. So he gratified himself. Why? Because here's what he knew. That if she would give birth, then the inheritance would have to be shared with the son that might be born. He was thinking about his own interests and his younger brother, Sheila. And he thought, I'm not going to allow a child to be born. So when they went to make love, he spilled his semen on the ground. Meanwhile, his dad doesn't know this is happening. Tamar does. Surely understands what's taking place here. God doesn't appreciate nor approve of this behavior of this brother. Look what happens in verse 10. Look what it says. What he did was what in the Lord's sight? Wicked. So the Lord put him to what also? Now hit the pause button there and look what it says in verse 11. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. What is happening here? Think about funerals, by the way. Now, sometimes we, we, we have the benefit of reading the end of the story. Now, let's, let's look through the lenses of first-time viewers of this. Judah doesn't know how his sons died. God didn't go to him and say, your sons are wicked. I'm putting them to death. Judah doesn't understand what's taking place here. All he sees is this woman, Tamar, is living with her sons. He dies. Funeral. First funeral you might understand. He dies of natural causes. Wouldn't graze any suspicion. Lots of grief. Consoling. She walks away. She marries the next son in line. Now, that second funeral, there might be some raised eyebrows. There might even, you might even have a personal detective and say, check and see if there's poison in his system. Check and see if something is taking place. Call the doc in and do an autopsy. And when after the second funeral, people, the, the newspaper might even raise some suspicion. Second man dies, same woman Same cause. How they die? Natural causes. So you can imagine what Judah is thinking. All he knows is this. I'm not letting Sheila touch that woman. So he tells her, you go 
and live in your father's household. Why? Because he feared that his third son might die too. Move on. What takes place next? Look at verse 12. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, what happened to there? What's it say? Died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira the Adamite went with him. Lots of deaths. Isn't that lots of deaths in a short period of time? Like, doesn't your inquisitive mind, minds want to know what's taking place here? I've often wondered when I read this account and read it again this week. I wonder if Judah pulled away and began to think about what he did to his brother Joseph. I wonder if he thought, as we do, this is happening because of that. They're dying because I did this to my brother. I wonder in that moment what was running through his mind. I wonder, you would think that by now Judah would take a hard look at his life. He sold his brother. Jacob thinks Joseph is dead. Judah hanging with Canaanite pagans, two dead sons. His wife is dead. He withholds his third son from Tamar. You would think the next action would be, Lord, I repent. God, if I'm connected in this in any way, I'm going to tell my daddy that, that, that this is what we did to Joe. But what happens? Look at verse 13. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to a name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she thought that, though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. Tamar becomes the very worst version of herself. She takes off her, grave, her, her grieving clothes. Because, hear me out, becoming a widow during the Old Testament times wasn't a very profitable place to be, nor was it very easy to live. Without children, a widow had no financial provision and was forced to beg, and even worse than that, she now realizes that she will never get a chance at Sheila. She is desperate because it says after a long time. Sheila, by the way, was at the age, surely old enough. By the way, in the Old Testament, dudes get married when they're 13 years old. Now, let's just think about that for a second. Imagine your seventh grade son getting married. Like, seriously, imagine your seventh grade son getting married. Sheila is at the age, Tamar recognizes, so she takes off her widow clothes, and she begins to try to control Judah's future against the will of God. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's God's purpose that prevails. Look what happens next. She takes off her widow clothes, and in verse 15 it says this, when Judah saw her, he thought, She was a what? What's it say? Prostitute. For she had covered her face. Verse 16. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. 
He is getting a dose of his own medicine. Isn't it interesting how sin just breeds sin until it's repented sin? You see, at the very core of who you and I are is something that isn't very pretty because of our own sin nature. And left to itself, we will do the very worst thing possible. It's a sly woman here. She wanted something to blackmail her father-in-law. So she says, I want something that you will give me that will show that I had been with you. It's interesting. What happens next? Look what happens next. Look at verse 17. So he says, I'll send you a young goat for my flock. By the way, that was a very expensive gift. And you ladies saying, a goat? Holy cow. Yeah, a goat. Very expensive. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He says, I'll give you this. She says, well, I need something that says, I'll exchange when the goat comes. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he, she, so he gave them to her and slept with her. Look what it says. And she became what by him? Pregnant by him. Verse 19. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Verse 20. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Dulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at a name? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to who? Where'd he go? Judah and said, look at verse 22. I didn't what? What's it say? Find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitutes here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. Meanwhile, Tamar is pregnant, living in widow clothes, all the while knowing what? That the baby formed in her was birthed by her father-in-law. Judah doesn't have a clue. She's covered up in widow clothes. Meanwhile, the baby is growing inside of her. She has devised the plan, and she still has the cane, the robe, the signet ring. She is still carrying it, knowing that one day I'll show him. He didn't give me his third son. This is how ugly sin can get. Look at verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamer, is guilty of what? And as a result, she is now what? Judah said, bring her out and have her what? What's it say? Burn to death. No grace. Isn't it interesting? Like he's repeating what he did and his brothers with Joseph. They threw him in a cistern. They were going to leave him for dead, but they, they bumped it up, made it just a little bit better in their minds. They sold him to the Ishmaelites. He just continues these patterns of sin. 
So he says, hey, Tamar, you know, why did he want her burned to death? Here's why he wanted her burned to death. Not because he thought she was a prostitute. It gave him a chance. There was no way that he would ever give up his other son, Sheila, and pass off his inheritance to this woman who he thought had killed somehow his sons. So he said, this is my chance. All the while, not knowing that the baby formed inside of Tamar was his. Unbelievable, messed up account. Sounds like something out of a Hollywood script. What happens next? Look at verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent a text message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant. Attached with a photo that was shown on Instagram by the man who owns these. And it was his letter jacket with judo on the back of it. It was his high school ring. And she says, it's all over social media. Have a good day, Sen. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine receiving that text message? Uh-oh. And I'm sure he was thinking, like any dude would. What? I'm in trouble. Read on. Look what happens next. I am pregnant, verse 25, by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize smiley face with the wink, whose seal and cord and staff these are. Can you imagine the look on his face as he looked at that jacket, size 40 Gucci, mine? I wonder in this moment if Joseph's ordeal crossed his mind too. You know how the Holy Spirit does that to us? Like, sometimes I say, Lord, just take care of everything. Like, I know this is there, just open me up. Bam, 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 bam. Guilty, 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 guilty. And my hope is in those moments when the Holy Spirit does that to us that we just repent. You know, take time to remember how much grace you have been given before you act again. And even though we get it wrong over and over again, and often blatantly, God's power to accomplish his will is not limited to our sinful efforts. Amen to that? Paul, like, he wrote, if you're not familiar, maybe you're a, a new follower of Christ. The New Testament has 27 books. The Old Testament has 39 books. 66 books in the Bible that, that, that I have in my hand today. In the New Testament... For sure, 12 of the books were written by, by a man by the name of Paul who, 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 who basically murdered Christians for a living. Got saved on this road called Damascus. And once he got saved, he just began preaching the word. And God let him write 12, and some think maybe even 13, the book of Hebrews. 12 books of the New Testament was written by Paul who once murdered and gave word to have Christians murdered. He says this in Romans chapter 7. Hold your finger here in Genesis He says this in regards to sinfulness and grace. Now, this is a man inspired by the Holy Spirit wrote, for sure, 12 books of the Bible. 
He says this in Romans chapter 7 in regards to how wicked we can be. Romans chapter 7, verse 14. Paul says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not what? You ever feel that way? This is what I want to do. Like, Lord, I really want to do good. But I do not do. Then he says this, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I what? Verse 16. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but the sin living in who? For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it, what? For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on, what? Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin living in me that does it. And then he says this. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Amen? That's the picture. It's like it's just daily wrestling mat. Here's reality. Once you become a Christian, you don't always do Christian things. We know the battle that rages. That's why we need accountability. That's why we need to spend time in God's word. That's why we need repentance. Like, why do I keep doing what I don't want to do and what I want to do, I don't do? It's a picture of this in Genesis 38. Back to Genesis 38. She becomes pregnant. Judah recognizes that she's pregnant. He says, put her to death. And what happens next? Verse 27, 26, he recognizes that he is the father. So verse 27 says this, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. Why? Because the firstborn was important when it comes to inheritance. Verse 29. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out. And she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named what? What's the name? Perez, verse 30. Then his brother who had the scarlet thread on his wrist came out, and he was named who? Zerah. Two sons, out of wedlock, born to a prostitute on a one-night stand. Fast forward a couple years. It's grade school, elementary school. It's parents' day. 
Perez and Zara, they're in first grade together. They're twins. Parents, it's parents' day. The dude sitting beside him, Bobby says, hey, who's your daddy? Um, do you really want to know? Yeah, my daddy is my granddaddy. What? Yeah, my daddy is my granddaddy. Can you imagine the shame and guilt and condemnation that would want to fall upon these boys as they began to grow up, knowing that they were born to their mom, who posed as a prostitute, who gave birth to them, and the father, their daddy, was their granddaddy. How in the world could anything good come from this? Is it even possible? Here's what I would say. Never underestimate how God can work all things out for good. You see, when we, Jim, you and me, fix our, say our eyes on our sin instead of our forgiveness in the grace of God, it's easy to forget that you are still the apple of God's eyes. With grace, we have hope. Okay, pause. This is chapter 38. Meanwhile, Joseph is still out there, faithful to God, being accused of adultery, living in prisons, becoming the chief cupbearer. Now he's running the country. His dad, Jacob, thinks he's dead. Judah's messing up his life more. So what will happen to Judah? Look at Genesis chapter 47. Look what happens in Genesis 47. Joseph meets his daddy. Now all the brothers are in front of Joseph, including Judah. In Genesis chapter 47, fast forward, the brothers get called out, and their dad is excited because they find out that Joseph is alive. And in Genesis chapter 47, they're before their brother Joseph, and in verse 5 it says, Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father Jacob and your brothers, who one of them is Judah, have come to you. And the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers, which one of them is Judah, in the best part of the land and let them live in where? There it is, best part of the land. Kind of wrote 36, baby. (laughs) And if you know of any among them with special abilities, put them in charge of my own livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked him, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. Verse 11. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers, including Judah in Egypt, and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramses, as Pharaoh had directed pretty incredible. Like, he doesn't deserve that, does he? Like, I'll give him Goshen. I'll give him County Road 7, the jail. We'll give him the best part of the land. God's grace redeems and restores our sin. That's not it. Look at Genesis chapter 49. So, so Jacob, his father, is old. He's about ready to die. 
And so he begins to put all these blessings, which was the custom of the day, on the sons. Remember, Judah is the one who said, sell him to the Ishmaelites. He's the one who wouldn't give his third son to Tamar. He's the daddy of his daughter-in-law's child. And then it says this, at the end of Jacob's life, he's blessing. And he says this in verse 8. Judah, your brothers will what you? Come on, come on. You need to help me out. You got to read it. Judah, your brothers will what? Are you kidding me? Like, I want to stand up and say, can we read chapter 38, please? But that's what grace does. Grace takes the chapter 38 of our lives and makes it as white as snow. Amen? Then he says this. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. In other words, you will rule over your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. Huh? The lion of the tribe of Judah is who? Jesus Christ. Look what he says. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come. <laughs> we know who that is. And the obedience of the nation shall be his. How in the world? Did that ever happen in chapter 39? Like, did, did they remove chapter 38? Gets better. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Look at Matthew chapter 1. First book of the New Testament. Go right to the middle of your Bible. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Look at verses 1 to 3. It gets better. Matthew chapter 1 and verses 1 to 3. What's it say at the top of your Bible there? The genealogy of who? Jesus. Look what it says, the Messiah. Look at verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of who? How in the world is Judah in the line of Christ? And his brothers, Judah, the father of who? Perez and Zerah, whose mother was what? Are you kidding me? Think about it. If I'm bringing the king of kings and the lord of lords and the lion, I'm going to put him in a line of faithful, committed followers of Jesus Christ. What happens next? Look at the end of this genealogy in verse 16. And Jacob, New Testament, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary, the mother of who? Jesus, who is called the Messiah. God's grace produce Jesus out of this mess. Okay, what's that mean to you and me? Imagine what he can do for us if Jesus came from that mess. You are not too far from God. You do not have too much baggage. You have not sinned too much that God's grace can't redeem. That's what we get here. You see, the church is the primary arena in which we learn that glory does not consist in what we do or don't do, 
for God, but in what God does for us by his grace. Here's the good news today for you and for me. God loves us anyway. He died for us anyway. He blesses us anyway, though we clearly don't deserve it. Christianity is not a karma system or karma religion. And if it were, none of us would have hope. Our salvation is based on grace through faith. There's not one single thing that you and I can do. Not one single good work that could ever earn our salvation. You've heard me say it, but for the sake of this story, the only thing that we offer God for our salvation is our sin. That's the best thing that we can give him. And he takes our sin and saves us with his grace. Keep this in mind. Tamar and Judah are not to be praised here, but God is. What do I mean by that? God is always the hero of every story. It's not us. We're not heroes. Jesus is always the hero of every story. It's not us. Any good or anything that happens around us that like, wow, look what he did. She was brave. He was No, 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 no. The only reason we're able to be brave, the only reason we're able to accomplish good is not because of what's in us. It's because Jesus working through us. Jesus is the hero of every story. Not us. He's the hero here. What else can we learn? The Lord used Tamar in spite of her sin. The Lord used Judah in spite of his sin. There is nothing from our past that God can't redeem. What else can we learn? This kind of grace, to be quite frank for me, motivates me to do the right thing. (laughs) Like, like I'm not doing it so I get grace, but I think, man, God, you're a good God. (laughs) If you can do that when they don't deserve it, then I just want to do good for you, God. I can't find that anywhere in our world. (laughs) Only through Jesus Christ. Think about this for a second. Why do we act as though our sin disqualifies us from the grace of God? Why do we do that And we look at our husbands and our wives and say, sin disqualifies you from the grace of God. That is the only thing that qualifies us is God's grace. Anything else is self-righteous attempt to earn God's grace. We cannot trust God's grace 99%. It's all or nothing. The problem is this, even as I referred to earlier, is that we want partial credit for our good works and even for our salvation. We want to say, well, I did this, God. Hear me out. You and I can never earn our salvation. Never. We can never earn God's grace. He doesn't say, you did all this good. Like, I've been watching you. You've been really good, Jim, this week. I'm going to give you some grace. No. Grace is unmerited, unconditional love. There are no conditions for God's grace. Listen to me. And the second we believe it, it's not grace. You see, we want to be 1% of the equation. 
But if we try to save ourselves, we forfeit the salvation that comes from Jesus Christ alone by grace through faith. Think about this. Judah, Tamar, Perez, Zerah, Jesus Christ. Come on, I'll tell you. Think about that. Judah, Tamar, Perez, Zerah, Jesus Christ. Amen. Grace, grace, unbelievable grace. God, let us be baptized with that grace today. Help us just to dole it out on our husbands and our wives and our kids and our friends and the world. Let it not be based on you. You need to earn your way back for my love. Help us, God, to quit putting conditions on our love for others. And may we just bask in the joy and the, the unconditional, the grace that comes and that Judah received. Oh, Jesus, please give us new lenses today. And may that just catapult our walks in such a fresh way to know that you can redeem our messes and make them into something beautiful. I encourage you, as our worship teams sing the song, just stay seated and let the truths of the song just wash over you and the truths of it permeate your lives. We ask this in the strong name of the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ. Amen.